podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jones! Barron! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket and our preview of the big series of the first part of the winter, I suppose, anyway. England against India, four test matches starting on Friday in Chennai. And I'm delighted to say that in addition to the usual Simon Mann, we've also got our celebrity guest star tonight or today, Vic Marks, who uh, actually, of course, will be Come familiar to cricketer readers, cricketer magazine readers, shortly because he's starting a regular column, uh, which we're delighted to have. And Vic, welcome to the Analyst Podcast. Uh, of course, the, the thing about this series is that no journalists or commentators, apart from the World Feed commentators, are going to be on site. Everybody's commentating from TV screens, etc. And journalists too will have to cover the game. You're not now working for the Guardian Observer. So this presumably is the first tour that you haven't been on for really quite some time. Yeah, I mean, my first ever tour, which you never forget your first tour, was in 1990, which is quite a long time ago. Uh, and it was impossible to talk to anyone when we were in the Caribbean, in Guyana, and now everyone can just do it from their sitting room or their bedroom if they want to. So, but I, I, um, I'll miss it, uh, and, but I won't be following very closely the first session or two of play in Chennai this <laughs> week. I'll let someone else do that, and I might sort of cruise in uh, somewhere in the middle of the afternoon session, and I'll be able to catch up because I really am looking forward to it actually as a contest. Spicy. You've shown impeccable timing because you, you're sort of retiring from regular journalistic uh, assignments just at the time when journalists can't go to tours anymore. <laughs> yeah, although in some ways that, that quite suits me, but it's the early mornings that we're getting. Um, yeah, I mean, part of me wanted to go to the next Ashes tour. The Ashes tour is always a sort of landmark moment, isn't it? Uh, but COVID and stuff intervened, and so uh, I withdrew gracefully um, on December the 31st. But I, so I keep telling people, and they don't believe me at all, it's not as if I've retired. I'm just going freelance, although I'm the worst qualified person to go freelance in the world. <laughs> I don't know how to look for work. <laughs> I, I don't believe you. Um, but, well, you've got some work here anyway uh, already, yeah, yeah. and without even asking. Uh, but but uh, actually, it's funny you talk about Australia because talking to some journalists uh, like Nick Holt and others who might be going to expect to go to Australia, they're saying it might be difficult, that tour as well, because Australia, as we've heard today, not going to South Africa, have this almost absurdly regimented restrictions to do with the pandemic. And it may be that journalists next winter can't go to the ashes, or if they do, they have to sit in a hotel room for about two weeks on their own. Well, in which case, I'm, I'm glad I've withdrawn. <laughs> um, I mean, you hope for better things, don't you, come next December? I was hearing that they're putting back the tour a little bit. It's a slightly delayed start compared to what we yeah. got used to, yeah. but um, it will be a weird Ashes series uh, if there are no English pressmen there. Uh, I presume they think there'll be spectators there, but if they can't be English journalists, therefore there can't be English supporters, presumably. And, you know, we're used to about 10,000 or more descending on Sydney and Melbourne. But uh, but we are, I gather, probably going to have some spectators in the second test in Chennai. 
yeah, which I is mean, a we'll, bit of a surprise too. Mm. Well, we'll we'll get onto that uh, that topic, Simon. You're obviously commentating or or doing some commentary anyway, using the TV monitors, which you've now had experience of doing the Sri Lanka series. Well, it's, it's something called the Cricket Social, which the BBC have done when they don't have the, the rights to commentate on a test series and, and the BBC doesn't have the rights to commentate on this India test series. So we, we chat about the game. We chat about what's going on in the game uh, with our, our various pundits and uh, presenters. And surprisingly, the, the, the hours go by very quickly we're starting at 6 30 in the morning so uh, as victor was suggesting there the the hours of play in india are not the most uh, beneficial if you want to get some sleep uh, in, in in the lead up to a day's play so we're starting at 6 30 mainly because we feel that's the time people are going to wake up and, and sort of engage with the series so we're doing the last two sessions of, of each day on the the cricket social and yeah we, we we look at the pictures and we analyze what's going on and we talk about some of the issues in the game and, and that's how the the cricket social works it's just a different way of uh, covering the series we do what we can with um you know what we're able to do really and it's, it's going online it's on the bbc sport website of course, uh, the last few days have seen all journalists and TV commentators and so on scrabbling around for wondering where this series is actually going to be on because there's been lots of behind-the-scenes negotiations going on which we now understand are pretty much secured and Channel 4, it sounds like, have got the rights to this series, uh, though you know there were some suspicions there might be some late bids from elsewhere. Channel 4, people keep, I keep my phones hot with the, oh, well, they're bringing back the analyst truck then. Uh, don't think there's any chance of that, actually. I think I it's going to be... I it, though. <laughs> Just to say, we're waiting for the call. Well, yeah, quite. Yes, yeah. yeah, so, is that Channel 4? <laughs> <laughs> I could even buy a, I'll buy a truck, actually, and, and just drive it up to the Channel 4. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got one. <laughs> but, but, I've got my um, old one. <laughs> but I think, actually, that, that, seriously, I think the, the, the coverage is going to be largely... The commentary from World Feed, which will be Star TV in India, and and then there'll just be a little bit of uh, in in between session punditry with advertising breaks as well, which we probably know from watching football. You know, if you have two advertising breaks or even more it, during the interval, that actually doesn't leave an awful lot of time for for chat. So it's going to be a fairly scaled down kind of production, I think, from Channel Four with a couple of pundits, Cooks being mentioned, Strauss. Who else? We don't know. But at the moment, it's not going to be me. Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't no. matter to, without due respect to all the people you've mentioned, no one's really going to care uh, who the pundits are. But what a lot, a lot of people out there are going to love is the fact that they haven't been able to watch Test cricket and now they can and they could have. Uh, no commentary at all, and they will be thrilled to bits to see live test cricket uh, that is available to all. Uh, don't worry about who's, who talk. Just turn the sound down if you're not on, Simon. <laughs> or even if I am on. Um, yeah, I, no, I, I think uh, you're absolutely... That's a very good point. And, of course, the last time Channel 4 had test match cricket was 2005, when we all know that the audience was about 8 million. And, and also, mm. of course, they had the World Cup final when the combined figures yeah. from Sky and Channel 4 then were also around 8 million. So it does open it up to, hopefully, a lot of audience. And I think that, that though the, there's a horrible early start for the first two tests, the third test in Ahmedabad starts at 9 a.m., UK time because it's a day night game so that actually is just that's perfect scheduling especially at a weekend for these channels so you're going to have 
for the third test, it's going to be 9am till 5.30. I mean, it's almost like watching an English game. Perfect for everyone working at home. I mean, presumably there are a few people working at home, aren't there, at the moment? I don't know. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's great, actually. It's fantastic, isn't it, to have the, the potential for test cricket back on free-to-air television. And it, it will be fascinating to see how many people uh, tune in to watch. I mean, here's a little tip as well. And it's something that I employ during the Australia-India series. If and, and Victor, I don't know if you've got something down in Devon there. If you've got something called a recorder uh, of your television oh, yeah. system, what you I've what you one. could don't know how it you, works. <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me. But what you could do, what you could do, canny people, of course, what they what they do is they record it. And then watch it, it sort of as live, you know, getting up or what, whatever you get up at, probably 10 o'clock in the morning, you can just switch it on and you can watch it as live. As long as you don't refer to your phone, anyone's sort of sending you messages or you look on Twitter or any of the websites, you can, you can watch a full day's play in real time. It's absolutely perfect. It's called a, it's called a recorder, Victor. Yeah, but you know, Simon, that being a hard-hitting journalist, I can't wait a second to find out what's going on out there. I've got a friend who actually records the whole of the game and then he watches it at night uh, and he, he doesn't want to know what's happened at all he's done he sort of goes about his day's work he's a musician and he goes about his day's work and then watches it literally sort of eight o'clock at night till three in the morning but people love the, the suspense and then of course the great thing about doing it that way as well as you can fast forward through all the breaks all the kind of interminable delays they'll be they'll be moving the sight screen problems and all sorts in chennai probably in the first two overs of the game you know with something flapping by the side of the sight screen or something and putting a batsman off so you can fast forward all that if you record it yeah, you just don't want to know what happens. It does make a difference, doesn't it? We, I'm watching a bit more sport, a bit more football, but I'm not interested if I know the score, even if it's 6-5. It's not knowing what's going to happen is the big thing, isn't it? Yes, OK. Well, let's, uh, let's consider what is going to happen. Uh, there's a lot at stake, of course, because, firstly, it's a big series, India v England, and you can talk about, Vic, your experiences of, of the 84-5 series in a bit, but also there's the World Test Championship final places at stake and we've heard today New Zealand are now confirmed as one member of that final so the other member could be either England India or Australia Simon give us the permutations oh well um, how long have you got um, basically uh, England have to have quite a, a decent victory in the series to qualify for the final so England need to win 3-1 3-0 or 4-0 good luck with that I say uh, as for India they have to win the series 2-1, 2-0, 3-1, 3-0 or 4-0. I'd say they might have a better chance of, of doing that. Australia, with this series against South Africa off, they can still qualify uh, for this much-anticipated ICC World uh, Championship final. That, that's from the press release from the ICC. Uh, if the England and India series ends up as drawn or if India win the series 1-0 or if England win it 1-0 or 2-1, or 2-1, or 2-1 it says, so there's a repeat there. Anyway, if England win it 2-1, then Australia will go to the final against uh, New Zealand. So there is a lot to play for, and Australia, sort of, they're sort of hanging on the result, really, of, the, of this series. But I mean, you'd think, wouldn't you? You'd think that yeah, there's a decent chance India will make the final. They have to win 2-1, 2-0, 3-1, 3-0, or 4-0 against England. Mm. You can't see England, I, I can't see England winning, winning more than one test. 
just because of the the the, the, the depth resource and the, the batting ability of India and also the their, their general potency with the ball as well my worry Vic is England and this is I think the sort of general worry in the country England being able to take 20 wickets in what is likely to be not necessarily spin friendly but not seamer friendly conditions yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, there's a contrast, isn't there, between the last two tours, because we went there in 2012, and Dhoni and his team, they wanted to play on tracks that turned very early on in the game. Well, the good thing from England's perspective, A, they had two good spinners in Swan and Panesar, but it meant that they had the scope to take 20 wickets. Last time we went, 2017, spin attack not so potent, maybe, but we did not play on quick-turning pitches. We played on pitches that eventually started to turn. There were a lot of runs scored, especially at Chennai. And so it became practically impossible for England to take those 20 wickets. So if you're India, although it might be slightly confused by the, uh, the permutations we've just heard, I think if you're India, you don't want to play on viciously turning tracks because it means that England can get their 20 wickets. They're right in the game. You want to play on tr on traditional Indian tracks, the sort of which we saw four years ago, where it doesn't turn rapidly, but you back your own batsman to make hay against inexperienced spin bowlers, not to be threatened too much by England's seamers. And then you back your own spinners, minus Jadeja, mine, to do a better job in familiar conditions against, you know, in England, an unbalanced England batting lineup in terms of their ability to play spin. So you, if I were India, I would not want to summon up raging turners from the word go. I want some traditional Indian tracks that might turn a bit later on, but allows their batsmen to impose themselves. And for England to struggle to get those 20 wickets. Here's something as well, though, that the, the man who's preparing the, the pitch for the two test matches in Chennai has never prepared a test pitch before. Ramesh Kumar, V. Ramesh Kumar is his name. But that doesn't mean to say he hasn't prepared pitches before. He, he, he has, and he's done them quite successfully, but he's never prepared a, a pitch in Chennai. There, apparently there are four pitches being prepared, two for each test match. And I, I mean, I don't know how the decision is made, you know, as we get closer to the game, about which one they're specifically going to play on for for each game. But I mean, that, that's, I don't know how much of a factor that is. Apparently there's got a lot of grass on on. The, the test match pitch for Friday at the moment, but whether there will be uh, by Friday, uh, we shall wait and see. But of course, India have got a very decent uh, pace yeah, yeah. attack as well. So, you know, they, they, in a way, they can take England on in, in all conditions, can't they? You, you, you feel. But I, I take yeah. your point about, you, you, I take your point about, do you really want to bring England spinners into the game? Pro probably you don't. You want to leave them out of it. And you know, the in Indian batsmen, they, they will feel pretty confident, won't they? Of, of, taking well, on spinners, you think? Obviously, I've done my research. No, I haven't. I just looked at the last game. Remember the last game we played at Chennai? You must yeah. have been there, Simon. I, I well, wasn't, but, were, I, yeah, but I, I remember England it well. Wigler were, were cock-a-hoop. They got 477 in their first innings. On a brown, flattish track at uh, Chennai, India got 759 for seven declared. England lose by an innings and 75 runs. Um so you, strange things can happen at Chennai. Uh, we've seen some great games. I've seen some great games at Chennai. We saw the Peterson when Peterson was captain, that run chase by India on the last day, where the, another really good pitch that's turned later on, but obviously not that viciously. Uh, and in, if you want some ancient history, I was, I was there when Neil Foster got 11 at Chennai, 
in back in 1984-5, where it was brown, but it was quick and it zipped through. You can get some really good cricket pitches at Chennai. Yeah, but tell, uh, tell us about how you won that tour because there was some rain around, and I, I noticed from looking back at the series, which I think you won two one, didn't you? Uh, that well, the yeah. that that actually India won the toss or India batted first four of the five times. Only I think the first test yeah. didn't. And so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean and, and as your uh, indication of that last test in Chennai that England played as well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to bat first. You don't have to win the toss and bat first, but no. you've got to bat well in the first innings. Yeah. Yeah. On that tour, as on perhaps the most recent tour, the ball did not turn prodigiously. Uh, the slow bowlers had a big part to play, but we didn't see the ball dusting and hitting the shoulder of the bat all the time. Uh, and, the, and there were quite slow test matches in some senses. We had our spinners did not take a huge number of wickets, but it, we had a young touring party, but old spinners. We had your old colleague, Phil Edmonds, who had, in a way, he had his best tour ever, I think, as a England bowler, even though his figures are very modest. And he lost his run-up. He had to bowl off two paces. Yet he bowled, I don't know, 300 overs, 250 overs in the series and was the most reliable bowler for Gower. And took important wickets. Uh, he only got 14 in the series, but he was the leading wicket-taker alongside dear old Pat Pocock, who was as unexperimental as Pat could ever be, which means he was experimenting quite a lot. But he was, he was as, you know, he was 38 or more, but a canny bowler, bowled a lot of overs. Uh, and England managed to pounce twice to win, once through Foster getting wickets uh, in his first test of the series down in um, Chennai. Uh, and they won when... Edmonds and Pocock got vital wickets in the third innings of a match at Delhi that seemed to be drifting for a draw. And then India panicked with Kapil Dev getting called up long off and England pounced and won that game. Uh, and they won the series against all the odds, having lost the first test. Um, and it was a minor triumph for David Gower, actually. It's almost his finest moment at that and uh, Ashes series. Um, so, I, I mean... Even if, England, even if in India don't decide to go for the raging turners, once you're in India, those spin bowlers are going to bowl a lot of overs. It is important, too, that Jadeja's not going to be there, at least mm. at the start, um, mm. which posed a few problems for, for India. I mean, they. but having said that, we, we, we thought the same in, in Australia. It doesn't matter who was absent there. No, that's, that's true. I mean, just picking up on a couple of points there. I mean, firstly, to say no Jadeja, whose test average is something like 24 with the ball, mm. and he's got over 200 wickets, and he's just a, a canny operator. Uh, they will replace him if they do play a left-arm spinner with Axel Patel, who hasn't ever played a test match. So there's a lot of inexperience to, for England to play on there. Uh, as far as England's bowling is concerned, the, the key, obviously, to winning that 2012 series as well as your series in 84-5 was Swan and Panasar who took 37 wickets between them at 25. One mm. shouldn't underestimate the impact of Anderson and also Finn reverse swinging the ball in in Calcutta as well in the third test but the essence of their victory was Swan and Panasar 37 wickets at 25. Uh, they had a lot of experience behind them before that tour they played you know nearly 80 tests between them whereas the respective figures for leach and bess 
are something like 24 tests between them now. They're both Somerset men. You're from Somerset as well. Uh, you've watched them grow up and, and develop and so on. What do they need to do now to, 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 to have success in India? Well, they need to be right on top of their game. I think you look at the Indian lineup. Um, I think Leach will be critical because he is actually, I think, the more reliable of the two bowlers. He's also going to be up against a side that is predominantly right-handed. And in this era, it makes a huge difference whether, as a spinner, you're spinning the ball away from the bat or into it. You look at the off-spinners, recent off-spinners have made hay against left-arm, left-handed batsmen. You look at Lyons' record, Ashwin, Swan, uh, Moen. They're so much more effective when you are turning the ball away from the bat. And this is partly because of DRS LBWs becoming a big factor and it changes the way people have played. So you look at India's lineup. Obviously, they've got Pant, the, the left-hander, coming in around about six or seven. But essentially, it's right-handed. Essentially, I think Leach will be critical and will be the first spinner on Root's list. Um, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge undertaking. But he he's a doughty fighter. And he's got he's got actually a bit more like Panesar as he's got older in that he started to bowl a heavier, quicker ball uh, so that he can be a handful when it turned. I always remember actually going to the final press conference of that two or four years ago with Dhoni, gave a very good press conference. He's very sort of clinical. He'd completely forgotten about defeat. He was just analysing. And he said, he seemed to say, well, one of the difference, big difference in the sides was Panesa, who played on turning wickets, bowled the ball quicker than anyone else. And we found him the most difficult. He was left out of the first test, but we found him the most difficult of all. Uh, and I think that applies for a left armour. If he gets it right and it starts to turn, he's your man. But uh, as for Bess, I, I admire Bess hugely uh, because he's so sparky and he's so up for it. And he does have the knack of snatching wickets in unlikely ways, sometimes from long ops. But it'll be a huge undertaking for him if he, if he plays all the matches. I don't know how they're going to juggle with Bess and Moen or not. I don't know. Um, he's very raw, but he's very willing. But he's going to have to learn very quickly because, as we know, these Indian batsmen, they're not frightened of the ball turning. I mean, is it hard for an off-spinner to bowl against right-handed batsmen? Is it, you, you were an off-spinner. Well, you I think it's many, harder now. You know, mm. um, part, partly is uh, nowadays, if it turns, you have a bit of a quandary. And we saw this with Bess, even though he got all those wickets in in Gaul, is if you're bowling over the wicket, and he also bowls quite open-chestedly, so the ball keeps drifting in in the air, and then it just keeps going. And when you're up against top players, you watch Callis. I mean, he he never he was batting on just outside off stump, and every ball he could clip it away on the leg side. And the top players, they just sort of milk it on that leg side, and it's very hard to get a line right. It's very hard for the bowler to attack the outside edge of the right-handed batsman there. So it is tricky, but um, I think, you know, I admire Best because he, he's always up for it. Uh, but I think he's going to have to, if he plays all the games, he's going to have to learn very fast. He's willing to try. And we haven't got much better. When you were playing, how easy or difficult was it to find the length as well? I mean, something I noticed watching both of them bowling mm. in Sri Lanka on a, on a helpful pitch is they bowled so much short stuff that was easy to, you know, swat yeah. away. I mean, you think, well... I don't know, it's, it's sort of frustrating to watch it, really. To, um, 
It how is. Can, how can you correct that? Or you know, what's well, going on there? You need to be able to... What is fascinating is there's so much um, technology available. And they kept getting hit through square cover, didn't they? A leech mm. would be patted away through there. And you're agonising as an old player, they will bring him up. <laughs> um, but what is fascinating when you get these pitch mats is to see how short that was. And against the top players, I don't think it's very short. On slow pitches, the top players, like Root, like Matthews, the margin of error is so small. And Root, you know, because he plays back so long, he could be hitting balls through square cover for a single off, off the left-arm spinner that uh, Simon and I would be prodding forward to. You know, it's such a small margin on slow pitches. Um, so that's the problem. They weren't long ops that were being hit to square cover by Joe Root and the good players. They were just short of a length, but they had the time. Once you get in, they had the time just to go back, and, and then there is that gap there. And you you agonise about whether it's worth having that man back all the time because it's such an easy get out. But So it's not as if they bowled filth when they were getting hit square. That's what I'm saying. I'm defending them a bit. Well, because and, I and actually, you, you saw... Yeah, if you re- it actually means, in a way... <clears throat> one should perhaps slightly redefine the parameters of those pitch maps because there's this sort of stripe which says good length. And mm. in India, particularly, and maybe Sri Lanka, that good length should actually be a bit fuller uh, because it the pitches be, yeah. are slow and the, t- the batsmen have got time to play off the back foot. So you have got to be just that little bit fuller. And of course, then yeah. the, the tendency is you, you you kind of overcompensate and you end up bowling hard volleys. Yes, that's right. I mean, that's what the good, the really good players, they do that. I mean, Root just keeps going back to length, what you think is a good length ball. And so you go fuller and you go fuller and suddenly you're bowling a half volley, which is cover driving for four. So it is a real puzzle. Um, and, and the margin error is so small. And the better the player, the better they judge length. They just they see it more quickly. So it's a huge mm. difference at test level. The top test players, they judge lengths so much better. Uh, and therefore, you know, they're almost sometimes feels, it sometimes feels there isn't a good ball to bowl <laughs> because they'll go back to your good length ball, you pitch it up further, and it's half volley length. Well, I think, but good luck to him. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, I think that's how England spinners felt when Karen Nair made his 300 in Chennai last time, and you mentioned well, that. 759. What's happened to him? Is that what you're going to say? Exactly. Well, I, I mean, I know, I, I, because I obviously research everything, mm. I, he's played, he must be a record holder. He's played six test matches only. <laughs> in his third, yeah. he got a triple hundred. He could end up playing six test matches in his career, of which... In, during which there's a triple hundred, and that must be a record. Is there any other triple centurion who only ever got to play six test matches? There was a famous cricketer who played Australia Shield cricket, and he got what he played one match, and he made a double hundred. Our statistician friends on this podcast will be able to dig up who it was. Yeah. I've forgotten his name. Yeah. It was the 1930s or something. That's looking at England's bowling. Um, what about the well, batting? Got- I mean, we've got uh, Root playing his hundredth Test match. Uh, Simon, uh, you know his his performance in the Sri Lanka series was exemplary. You couldn't no, was- you couldn't have bettered that really, could you? It was a masterclass. It really was. It was absolutely top class batting against you know, decent spin bowling. 
Embledenia, you know, was it was a real test for him or for England anyway, but Root dealt with him superbly. It was brilliant batting, really. It really was. I mean, they ran him out twice. He was caught on the wide, long off boundary once. And the other time he, he sort of held the ball onto his stumps. I mean, he's, you know, he, he found ways of peculiar ways of, of getting out in that series. I, mean, I wasn't in Chennai, Victor. You, you mentioned that uh, last test match that was played in Chennai, actually. But I was in in Nagpur in 2012 when England were under pressure and he came in for the last test match and that was his first game he came out and he made uh, 73 and I think you know most people then thought oh, this this player you know he, he is going to be a decent player for England and you know 100 test matches later I saw Joffre Archer as press conference said today predicting that Root could play another 70 test matches and I suppose if the back holds together and and one or two other things go his way you know it's not impossible the amount of test cricket that that England play you know you'll go past uh, Cook in terms of test matches and in terms of, of runs as well. I mean, he, you feel he's so important to England's chances in India. Has he used up all his runs already, though? No, I hope not. <laughs> he, play, he torments you because he, he basically plays back. And I remember when he was picked in Nagpur, it was not the obvious selection. It just won two matches in a row when you thought yep. they'd keep the same team. Of course, now it seems absurd that they were agonising over whether to drop Samit Patel and play Joe Root. But that's what it was. But it was quite a surprising selection and a brilliant one. Partly, I think Cook had seen him in the nets and thought, hang on a minute. And he just wanted some. We needed to draw that game. And he batted beautifully. But he waits such a long time. The top players seem to be able to wait so long. And he essentially... He played those spinners on slowish tracks, but turning tracks off the back foot far more than any other player would. And uh, he watches it like a hawk and he, it works and he's sweeping. I mean, I think the more it turns, the more you sweep. You may not see so much sweeping on truer tracks in um, India. And the Indian batsmen don't tend to sweep as much as the overseas ones. Uh, but his sweeping of the turning ball, I mean, it drives you scatty because you bowl, the balls he's scoring off, when they leave your hand, you think, well, that's all right. That's on a length. And he's sweeping them to deep mid-wicket all the time against the spin. Along the ground uh, as well. Yeah, Not along the ground. No hint, no hint of a it. chance. And then and then when you, you think you might have got him, he plays that little paddle sweep and utilises the little gap behind square on the leg side. It's all about hitting the ball where the fielders yeah. are. And that's where the Indian players are always, always so brilliant because their wristy style of particularly working the ball on the leg side... So, I mean, there is a disparity, isn't there, between you know Root is a banker and it's essential for him to get big runs. Butler, while he's there, you think it's a good chance. He's a terrific player. He's played a lot in India now, albeit in IPL, but against the turning ball, it doesn't worry him and he's got the shots to combat that. But then you fret a bit. What's going to happen to the likely top three of Sibley, who, you know, eventually got somewhere in the last test match in Gaul. Burns, who hasn't played for ages. And Crawley, we all love Crawley, but he's still got to work out his best way of playing against spin. So if they are the top three, you're a little bit nervous when England go out to bat, and you probably might be a little bit relieved if there is a bit of grass on and they've got a conventional start against a couple seamers rather than another left armour coming on to torment them. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point, actually. And I made the point in one of our Sri Lankan podcasts, actually, that I don't think that the Indians have a, a left-arm spinner of the quality of Embledenia, who caused them so much trouble in Sri Lanka. Obviously, we've got Ashwin, and they've got fine opening bowlers in Jasprit Bumrah and Ishant Sharma, who's coming back from injury. So in a funny sort of way, I don't think that the opening attack for India will tax Sibley and Crawley and Burns quite as much 
as maybe facing an Embledenia on a, a turning pitch with the new ball did. Yeah. Yeah, but they, I think they'll be relieved, though, if there are two pacemen coming, even mm, though, yeah. you know, Bumrah is a terrific bowler yeah. and a dangerous bowler. But, but you know, he, if you, he he was injured during that Australia series, uh, which was a very intense series. I, I could see, you know, the way he bowls and the amount of overs he has to bowl as well. He might, you know, struggle towards the end of a, another very tightly packed series. Yeah, I mean, I think Bumrah is a one-off. In the, he's the first bowler I can think of who was started to excel at test level, having begun his career almost exclusively as a one-day bowler. In the same way that David Warner went, you know, he was the mm. first batsman to go that I suppose way. you could say Malinga a little bit. Did he, did he, he I suppose he Maybe. didn't really have much success at test level, did he? Oh, uh, well, yeah. No, Malinga would be a good example. I'll give you Malinga, happily. One thing that's fascinating about this, this Indian side, I mean, looking from the outside, it's incredible, really. Virat Kohli, Goes to takes the team to Australia. He's only going to play the first test match. They lose 36 all out. He goes home. He's their best player. He's their captain. You know, doom and gloom. Surely they're going to lose the series 4-0. Lo and behold, Rahani comes in. Uh, they win two and they draw one of the last three. And they they win the series. Back-to-back -back series wins in Australia. And, you know, much wailing and gnashing of teeth from the Australians. Uh, would India be better off in this series with Rahane as captain rather than Virat Kohli. I mean, you talk to Indian journalists who watch their team a lot, and they say they, you know, they all say, "Oh, he's not. He's really not a very good captain, Virat Kohli." We see him in the IPL. He's, you know, usually wears his heart on the sleeve. He's berating his bowlers. Fielder drops a catch. You know, he's on them as well. Um, I just wonder whether the, the Indian players respond well. They, they did in Australia. Seem to respond more. Would respond more to Rahane rather than Virat Kohli as captain. Well, I think you should go online to your Indian public and say, <laughs> drop Kohli now. Well, I'm not necessarily saying drop Kohli, but I, mean, right. well, I'm not, I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to drop him from the team. But, um, you know, is Rahane, uh, you know, a better... But he's, he's so much calmer, isn't he? The way he celebrated yeah. that 100 in, in the in the mm. second test match, you know, they, you know, most people would be leaping, you know, coming in that cir those circumstances, you know, 36 all out, you're in the side, all the pressure on you, you know, they'd be leaping around like David Warner and, but he, you know, very calm, took his helmet off, raised his bat. And it was like, it was like getting a, a you know, 100 in the parks in, in May, the way he celebrated <laughs> yeah. it. Actually, um, there, there's, there's interesting. I mean, I'm sure Vic could have a, 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 a thought on this as well, but I started my career playing under Mike Brearley who mostly had quiet persuasion as his tactic for getting the best out of people, occasionally lost his temper. And then I had Mike Gatting, who was much more of a sergeant major, sort of barking orders, really. And I think Coley and Rahani are a bit in that bracket as well. I, I think Coley can be a bit intimidating, actually. And I, I prefer oh, the Rahani style of captaincy as a, pers as a personal preference myself. Edmonds would have gone the other way, <laughs> probably. But... Um... I think actually, just imagine you. I think it'll it'll jolt Coley. I mean, he obviously, who delighted that England, uh, sorry, India won that series in Australia. He will be delighted, but he's no longer indispensable. It's a reminder that no cricketer is entirely indispensable. Like everyone thought when Coley was going home, they'd been bowled out for thirty six. India were doomed. Coley went and they won the series. And Coley sort of jolted Coley as well as delighted him. And I, I think he'll score a stash of runs just to try and remind people that he is indispensable. And it may be that he might listen a bit more to Rahani and, and, and be a bit more measured as a captain. I think it's a sort of win-win for India, frankly. 
Well, there's Coley then, but what about the rest as well? And Rishabh Pant, that innings he played on the, the final day of the, of the last Test match in Australia. I mean, he is a young star. I mean, he's a bit flawed, isn't he? He'll give you a chance, but if you give him a chance and he's deadly, and there, you know, there are lots of good players in this Indian batting lineup at the top of the order as well, as well as in the, the middle of the order. I mean, it does look a formidable challenge for England, this. Shubman Gill, uh, you know, one should look at him, actually. I mean, he opened in the latter part of that series in Australia and he looked absolutely excellent. His slightly unusual technique, he tends to stay leg side of the ball and, and hit through the offside. Very good uh, against the short ball, unusual for, for Indian batsmen. He's got high back lift and, and, and high hands. So a bit like Alistair Cook, actually, the shorter you bowl, the more he likes it, really. Uh, but but just got a very good all-round game. Looks like he's got a good head on him. He's made massive scores in domestic cricket. He's averaging something like 68 in first-class cricket in, in India. Rishad Pant is a dasher. He's audacious. He's, you know, he's sort of impish. He's almost impudent, really. But, you know, so talented. Uh, excellent against spin. I think England might, if they get any any bounce out of a pitch, someone like Archer might be able to ruffle him up, uh, get the short ball in. It depends how long the boundaries are, of course. So, you know, someone like Australia, bigger boundaries. You can get people caught hooking. You can't necessarily so much in India. I think Archer, though, will be the, the man for, for Pan because of the angle he bowls. He bowls across the left-hander. So he might have a, a you know a, a bit of a bit of hope against against <coughs> such a dangerous batsman if he comes in when your bowlers are tiring, when they've already been ground down by the top order, and then you know it's sort of 70, 80, 90 overs gone, the bowlers are tired, and someone like Pant flays you all over the place like Adam Gilchrist used to. Looking from afar, what what was so uplifting about India's performance is just a sense of the hunger amongst the young Indian players to want to excel at Test cricket. And now they'll be fated as well. So I thought it, it was great for cricket uh, and great for Indian cricket and indeed for world cricket to see the fact that India's Test team was causing so much excitement. And, then, and amongst their younger players who obviously brought up with IPL in the background, I know, Pujara probably doesn't play much IPL, but essentially they've all come through IPL as well. But the passion uh, for Test cricket has been reignited by this victory in Australia. And the fact that the young Indian players clearly value that success in Test cricket as much or possibly even more is, is something that, you know, fills me with a bit of confidence looking forward to the next few years that even the young Indian players and Kohli gives a good example here. The young Indian players really care about the notion of excelling at test level. And when they have victories like we've just seen, so does the, the Indian nation as well, which is sort of good news, I think. One thing we've discussed quite a lot on this podcast in, in recent months is whether we're about to enter sort of like the period of Indian domination, like the West Indies in the 1980s and Australia in the 90s and into the 2000s. Of course, they're you know, very good in, in one day cricket, very good at home. So the last frontier for them really has been, I suppose, consistently being world number one, but also winning away. I wonder whether you think, Victor, that actually that win in Australia shows that, and also, you know, the, 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 the breadth of their squad now 
shows mm. that they, you know, they might be on the point of dominating world cricket. We know they do financially. We know the IPL is, you know, head and shoulders above every other, you know, domestic uh, T20 league. But I wonder whether, you know, just as a sort of monolith, really, Indian cricket and the Indian team is about to be hugely dominant in all three forms of the game and and, and you know, be, be the number, you know, unequivocally the number one uh, team in world cricket. Yeah, well, that's question is posed by that victory in Australia, which no one really saw coming uh, after that first test match. And there was this perception in years gone by that India were happy, provided they kept winning their home test series <clears throat> and with a few one-day successes, that there was a bit of a shrug of the shoulders when they got thrashed in Australia or possibly in England, not to worry, uh, no one's really noticed. Once we get back home, we must make sure we win there. And I think they are more ambitious now. I hope they're all more ambitious. And I also think this, this depth that they seem to have, this hunger amongst the second stream, will obviously keep the more established players on their toes as well. They've got depth in pace bowling. Uh, one or two younger batsmen, you know, there's a, there's a competition for places there. And that's going to help them as well. Um, they want to be part of the, the top team. So it might be. I don't. I can't quite see it happening in quite the way, say, the West Indies did it or Australia did it for a 10-year period at this moment. India have had this win in Australia. It's one win in alien conditions, if you like. Um, we'll see what happens when they come to England. Mm. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm I, not I, sure that our fast bowlers are going to be shouting at them, you wait till we get you at Old Trafford or something like that, however. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? it's interesting to have a projection about uh, how this Indian team will go over the next two or three years. I, I think if you compared it to, say, the Australians or the, the West Indies and their dominance, their dominance was born out of obviously superb batting, but mainly very penetrative bowling. Australia mm. with McGrath, Warren and others, and obviously the West Indies with their four or five pronged pace attack. I don't see India having quite the same potency in their bowling. They've got Bumrah, yes. Ashwin has 300 test wickets. Jadeja has 200. But they don't pose quite the same threat around the world as those yeah. two pairs or groups of bowlers from Australia or West Indies do so or did. So I, I can't see them being quite as as oppressive, as intimidating as those Australian and West Indies teams of the past. Mm. But there's no doubt that they take some, some beating, especially at home, where I think they've won 28 of the last 34 test matches. And mm. even away, I mean, in a way, England is their last frontier because they've now conquered Australia twice. That's right. I mean, their record at home is amazing. Is it the last win or last loss they experienced was uh, in Mumbai against England? Was that right or not? That may be totally wrong. The last serious defeat that they, they've suffered was back in 2012. So the only that serious is... defeat since 2004. Okay. Just as a final thought, uh, crowds. Simon, you, you pointed it out. Chennai for the second test, 25% of the, of the capacity possibly. And then Ahmedabad third and fourth test could be more. How, how is that going to play out, do you think? How, how, what sort of impact is that going to have? I, I guess one thing is no English fans to counter the fanaticism of the Indian fans. One of the great, I think one of the great experiences of, of covering cricket around the world is to go to and watch cricket in India and the, the, the noise, the fanaticism in the ground when India are doing well and actually silence actually when they're not doing well. But, but I, I have this sort of memory of 
you know, batting collapses, England batting collapses, and the noise in the ground and the pressure as well that, that builds. And I think as a batsman, there's that feeling that almost the crowd is forcing the umpire's finger up, because a bit different now with the uh, DRS. I remember once a, an appalling decision that Marcus Truscothic got in a one-day international in, in Calcutta when he made a hundred brilliant hundred, England were winning the game, and then he, he was given out to a ball that clearly pitched outside leg stomach but it almost felt as if the the eden gardens crowd was lifting the umpire's finger he, he, he just could not resist it and you have that sort of sense that it's all india on a roll and it's very hard to contend because in chennai there'll be no one there in the first game and then spectators uh, back for the second match the crowds in chennai haven't been that good for test cricket and they have recently they've had problems with the stands there as well so they've had half the ground closed in any case but that stadium in ahmedabad is 110,000. Imagine if they had, you know, only if they allow 50% of spectators in there, It'd still be a massive crowd if everyone comes along to watch. And you think there would be that sort of enthusiasm for the game as well after what India uh, did in, in Australia, you, you know, even for Test cricket. I know white ball cricket is, is king in India. So I think that's, it'll be great. I think, I think it's that experience of the crowds out there, even for the players as well. You don't want to be playing in front of, of nobody do you i mean you want you want that whole experience and that that is uh, i think that's one of the beguiling things about going to india and, and watching the cricket out there is is that's that real passion in the crowd the fervor in the crowd which i'm sure you must remember vic from your tour <laughs> yeah but i still think they're, pol they're certainly politer than the aussies <laughs> uh, uh, they do get incredibly excited and, and and you know the likes of Kohli or i don't know ashwin they're they're sort of demigods aren't they and they're worshipped so it's it's more huge excitement of their own players excelling rather than you know hostility against the opposition in fact way back and you know it was very easy for for england players to win over um the crowd uh, yeah, I remember oh, Tony Gregg years ago would have been brilliant at it alan lamb was quite good at it on a boundary i remember him pinching a a policeman's helmet and his lathy and wandering around at third man. They all thought it was wonderful. Um, so I'm not sure you get so much hostility in India, but you do sense that excitement when their team is on a roll. And it, yeah, it, I mean, we just crave seeing them back. I mean, cricket, I think, has prospered unexpectedly well in the absence of any crowds. I think it's been a better sport than some of the others, particularly test cricket. That because of some sort of intensity amongst the players, it has worked better than I ever thought possible. But it would be lovely to have a few people back in the stands. Even if they're all supporting their their, their home side. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so what do we... Let, let's have a prediction here, then. What, what do we predict for the series? I predict that India will qualify for the World <laughs> Test Championship. <laughs> Final. Um, well, actually, they've got to go some. That's a 3-1. I'm thinking 3-1 or 2-0 there. But two I think one's India, enough, I think, Victor. Isn't uh, it? Two one's enough? No, I thought two one was not good enough. Anyway, you'll have to check that out. But I think uh, India are clearly the favourites. And I'm worried about Butler. He's going home. And then after one test, key man there. And then I think, well, what happened to India when Kohli went home? So who knows? It's, it, um, I, but I, logic tells me that India should win. But you never know. I think England would be competitive. I mean, they, they were in India last time, and they scored over four hundred in in the first innings of three of the uh, three of the Test matches. Just that India, you know, ended up getting six hundred or or, or seven hundred. Like Victor, I think 
India will qualify for the World Test Championship final. I think the games will be a bit, you know, the, the games will be reasonable because they'll be very competitive. England are, you know, they're an emerging sort of half decent side, but they've still got a way to go. And India at home, they they just feel so strong. I mean, my, I just have that feeling that you know, you'll, I don't know, when you would finally emerge, Victor, from your hit at whatever time in the morning, nine o'clock when the day's <laughs> well, it, it might be early in that. You never know if the drink's good. <laughs> oh, well, the well, I may be I may be tuning into the social at whatever time it is, six thirty. Six thirty, yeah. Six thirty. <laughs> um yeah, I, I sort of have this feeling that you know if you turn on you know, England, India bat first on the first day and you be, you know they have a decent decent enough score on the board out of one day, you turn on the second day halfway through when you emerge and they you know they might be something like four hundred and twenty for four. And you know they're looking at a declaration that that sort of cricket, but, but you know, perhaps England's pace bowlers will have a part to play in this series. I think they're going to have to bowl well, England's pace bowlers, and put pressure on the Indian batsmen if England have a chance mm. in this series. Whether they will be allowed to by the pitches, I don't know. But of course, there is a day-night game, um, which you know that uh, you know, and anything could happen with with the pink ball under lights uh, in India. So if it, you know, if if for example, you get a session where England happen to be bowling. In that in that session, perhaps the game might move on quickly with their their pace bowlers. So that, there's that unknown in the series as well. First day night uh, test match that England will play in India. Well, I'll go two one or maybe three one to India. But d- just bear in mind one thing, and you you made that point, Simon, as well. Ahmedabad's a new test venue as well. Mm. I, I know it's a, a, a you know in a way it's a reinvented test venue, but it's certainly a new pitch. Nobody knows how that's going to play either. So. England could have some some chances in that day night test in particular, but yeah. anyway, Donald Trump. we'll see. We'll see. Two one or three one is is my verdict for for India, but I think England will win one test match somewhere. Let's hope it's the first one, and then they can really put the cat amongst the pigeons. Okay, Vic, thank you very much for your time. Just one more question for you: uh, in our virtual cricket club this week, Thursday night, we have an old colleague of yours as our special guest, Mister. IT Botham, or should I say, <laughs> IT Botham? Lord, um, no, Lord. Lord Botham. Um, <laughs> what, what could we expect from an hour of company with him, would you say? Well, you know as well as I do. Obviously, it will be um, a stimulating chat. Um, ask him about our, you know, I think you should ask him about our potential trade deals. Um, now that there has been a change I don't change want the call there. to end early. <laughs> I'll wait till the well, end did, then. Ask him uh, the last 10 a, minutes. I did I did a piece with him actually just before Christmas. Uh, just a friendly, you know, it was on his 65th birthday. Uh, mostly about the old day. And then I just at the end, I mentioned Brexit. And, uh, uh, and he said, oh, don't worry about that. I said, I said, I think we're coming from slightly different angles on Brexit, uh, uh, Ian. <laughs> I said presumptuously without giving him his full titles. And he said, don't worry about that. We won. And, and then that was the end of the interview. <laughs> we finished there. Give us, well, just give us one tip, uh, something that he used to do in the dressing room, which was extremely annoying. <sighs> well... Well, well, you'll have experienced him, you know, the old lighting of newspapers as your as the rain comes down and all that stuff. He was also, I mean, he used to have some cri- his bridge play. He used to get him to play bridge, even though he didn't really know the rules. <laughs> he, well, you couldn't tell him that. <laughs> but we all started playing bridge. Oh, I'll play that, <laughs> and off he went. And the other thing I remember, and I've never really talked to him about this, 
but I do remember it from the 82-3 tour when he was huge, Australia, it's post-1981. Uh, ask him, actually, this is the question, ask him whether they, Dusty, Jeff Miller and him, when England were batting in the Test match, they played cribbage for hours on end, if the upper order... And they weren't being kind of arrogant or dismissive. It's just that I think Ian wanted to escape. Everyone wanted to see him. The tension, you know, there was pressure on him. And it was his means of escape. And I just remember hearing Ian say to Dusty, right about a third of the fourth test myself, you owe me $1,152 now, because <laughs> he obviously... <laughs> but ask him if he can remember play, whether Dusty ever paid him uh, his dues after the cribbage in, um, in, in, on the 82-3 tour. That's my memory. I don't know if you'll remember it, but... Um, that's a good question. Well, send, okay. him, send him my, uh, my very best. OK, and, well, um, listen, we're, that's great. And we're, we're doing a little bit of wine tasting with, with Ian on... Thursday night well, as well. Talk, if you want him to get very excited, talk about that. He'll yeah, talk well, for we, ages we, we, about wine. We'll do that. So anyway, so you can join us at the uh, Virtual Cricket Club. If you go to worldsbestcricketclub.com, uh, it's £6 a month to join, uh, but that includes four live events, one of which is Ian Botham this Thursday night at 7pm. Simon will be with us, won't you, Simon? I will, yeah. So what, what's the Brexit question do you think we should ask him then? Well, tell, you must feel some sympathy with the shell fishermen, shell, you know, the shell <laughs> yeah. fishermen of, of, of South Devon and Cornwall. Um, mm. Could you explain to us how, you know, how, this, how Brexit is benefiting these poor... poor you, li you like eating shellfish, don't you, Ian? He'll, he'll, have, it, he'll, have, it, he'll have an answer for that, won't he? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, that's on Thursday night, and then we'll be doing a podcast every day of the India series as well, uh, Friday night onwards, uh, so we're looking forward to that. So that's every night of the India series starting on Friday. Vic Marks, thank you very much. And by the way, look out for the next issue of the Cricketer magazine in which you feature prominently. We'll speak to you on Thursday or Friday. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Podcast Network.